Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Radio waves are predicted by Maxwell, sent by Hertz, and sold to the world by Marconi. But it's all still person-to-person radio for now, like walkie-talkies. Not person-to-many people, like, um, well, I want to say this podcast, but I think that's more likely person-to-person as well for now. In this episode, an infamous iceberg, war, and fresh from it, two engineers, Lieutenant Ditcham and Captain Round, as British radio programmes begin. This is the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. London well, hello to you. Thank you for loaning your ears. Have a loan of my voice in those ears. But it's only a loan, mind, because that voice belongs to me, Paul Carenza. Hello to you. I do hope you're doing OK, given everything currently. Things like a global pandemic do change things and move us on technologically, don't they? You know, so too indeed with the First World War just over a century ago. And just like then, we find ourselves in a time of great tribulation with tech that many of us are still getting used to. If you've tried joining a Zoom meeting while homeschooling children who are doing Microsoft Teams and working out when you're meant to mute and unmute, then you'll know what I'm talking about. So 100 years ago, a similar technological revolution was underway. 100 years ago this very month, in fact, as I record, one of the major landmarks occurred in broadcasting with the very first proper wireless concert, the first deliberate test of an audience to see if demand and technical efficiency meant that broadcasting had a future. This is all before the word broadcasting was even invented. It was just transmitting at this point. Now, that wireless concert is exactly 100 years old on June the 15th, 2020. So if you are listening in advance of that, which is Unlikely, given that's only a few days' time. You can catch, I think it'll be episode four, the Melba episode, on its day of release. That'll be Monday the 15th of June. And if you're listening in the far future, then... How did it all turn out? I'd love to know. Now, I've worked for the BBC on and off for about 20 years or so, maybe off after this series, but hopefully not, because this podcast, I should say, has no affiliation to the BBC. They've not asked me to make this. They've not commissioned it. So for legal reasons, let me clarify, it's just me in a wardrobe, okay? Because I I do love the Beeb. But I couldn't watch W1A, the sitcom that is set there, because for me, it was too real. I've had meetings like that. Those rooms named after BBC celebrities. Yes, there are rooms named after BBC celebrities if you go to Broadcasting House. That's true. I've been late for meetings because I've been looking for the meeting room called Des Lynham and thought I must be near it because I found Gary Lineker. But, but no, Des Lynham is between Morecambe and Wise and Jules Holland for some reason. It's highly confusing. But those rooms, one named after key BBC figures, I think might be missing a few. There are a few historical names on the rooms. Yes, there's a room called Hugh Weldon, uh, Richard Dimbleby. There's a few 1930s continuity announcers who've made it, Jasmine Bly and Elizabeth Cowell. But I've not found Arthur Burroughs, Peter Eckersley, Hilda Matheson. And we need two rooms at Broadcasting House labelled Ditcham and Round. Even if, well especially if, they're hidden away technical store cupboards. Before we get to Ditcham and Round in 1919, let's catch up then. Last episode, we left our intrepid hero, Radio, in the crackly 1900s with a burning hot microphone due to the wild experiments of Reg Fessenden. Now, we'll skip past a decade of conferences and conventions, patents and changing tech. What used to be spark transmitters, quite unreliable, they're replaced by the thermionic valve, the basis of which is invented by John Ambrose Fleming, a designer at Marconi's company. 
I had the apparatus installed on an Italian warship, and speech was received on a second level over a distance of 35 kilometres. Marconi kind of cons him out of 500 shares, but... That's business. And that thermionic valve actually is the basis of modern-day electronics, so thank you, John Ambrose Fleming, for that. Radio grows in strength, in distance. Increased to 70 kilometres. Thanks to pioneers like Leader Forest in the US. That is an American-and-a-half name, isn't it? Leader Forest. In Britain, he'd be called Lee Wood, and that'll be it. But either way, the Americans leap ahead. Then in 1909, you get, really, what's the first radio station? San Jose calling. It's also the first to use advertising in a way, or it's at least like-for-like publicity for a record store. You know, they supply the records and they're mentioned on air. Now, advertising is one of two problems that the UK does see coming when they look to the US. Advertising and too many transmissions. If you still today look at British TV versus American TV... Probably the two main differences is we've got less advertising and fewer channels uh, and the accents are different and we've got fewer desks. America loves desks, what can I tell you? But is Marconi interested in setting up a US-style radio station? No, he is not. His growing company is linking the world. They're sending messages across the Atlantic for the press at a cost per word, of course. I now felt for the first time absolutely certain that the day would come when mankind could be able to send messages without wire, not only across the Atlantic, but between the furthermost ends of the Earth. And Marconi's interested, actually, bizarrely, in catching criminals, it seems, as Dr Crippen races across the Atlantic on an ocean liner to flee from a murder scene in 1910. By the time he docks in the New World, a ship's steward has spotted him, sent a radio message to London and back to America, and an arrest warrant is waiting for him. Marconi takes the credit for catching Crippin. And he's saving souls as well. One of the first ship's wireless sets is on board the Titanic. The Marconi operator that travels with that set gives his life, but saves 700 others by radioing for help. Marconi again takes the credit. Financial markets communicate and the press receive near-instant news stories from continent to continent. Marconi has successfully shrunk the world, it seems. But it's a divided world, because just as Marconi begins regular transmission of human speech, uh, as opposed to any other kind of speech, I guess, parrot speech, there was no transmitted parrot speech that we know of at the time. But like the Tower of Babel confusing man's tongue, if you'll forgive the dramatic metaphor, the Great War begins and speech is scattered. The powers that be realise in war the strategic importance of radio. Troop to troop, great for communicating. The government can't ignore radio anymore as they had been till now, but they are still suspicious. What if the wrong people listen into the signals? Then again, radio is very good at getting messages to places quickly, and especially when German soldiers start to cut British wires, and indeed vice versa, wireless is the way to go. So then you get wartime innovations by innovators we'll come to know over the next few episodes. In a few episodes' time, we're going to meet Arthur Burroughs, BBC's first programme director, visionary of future broadcasting, and one of the key people at the very, very early BBC. But in the war, Arthur Burroughs, he's wading through intercepted German radio transmissions. He's collating and passing on to the British military hundreds of hours' worth of wireless propaganda from Germany. And future BBC boss John Reith, he was largely in America, running a munitions factory, and future chief engineer of the BBC and Britain's first DJ, in fact, Captain Peter Eckersley. In war, he's a wireless equipment officer who is actually there at the moment when his boss and his mentor, Major Prince, makes the first ever ground-to-air radio communication. 
with these words. Hello, Fernandel. If you can hear me now, it will be the first time speech has ever been communicated to an aeroplane in flight. Dip if you are hearing me. And Furnival's plane bows to Marconi's greatness. It's swiftly followed by the first air-to-air, in other words, two planes in flight communicating with each other. But this episode, we're going to meet Captain Round, soon to launch mass-market British radio. So in war, he was actually helping win the Battle of Jutland by inventing radio direction finding equipment. In other words, you know, that ship hundreds of miles away over there, we can now tell is on the move because of the radio signals. So it's time to strike. Now, quick question for you. OK, pay attention. If you take Eckersley and Prince's ground-to-air radio communications, right, so ground-to-air, and you mix that with the direction-finding kit of Captain Round, in other words, you can tell where a signal is coming from, what have you got? I'm going to give you a few seconds to puzzle it out. Ground-to-air radio communications plus kit that tells you where a signal is coming from equals, altogether now, air traffic control. I hope you all joined in with that. So I've mentioned him a few times, but who is Captain Round? He's fresh back from war, working at the Marconi Company as one of their chief engineers. They're now focused back on radio as ship-to-ship communication, messages over long distance, so that means bigger and better transmitters. So why does Captain Round matter so much for the story of radio? Well, here's the pippy early radio voice to tell us more. Good old Captain Round is one of Marconi's chief engineers and ultimately head of research. He's built, developed and tested so many of these transmitters, but he's no fan of red tape. Get on with it, chaps. Design and build first, ask questions later. That's the ticket. Captain Henry Joseph Round is eager, charismatic and, uh, well, rather squat. If you imagine Churchill and his cigar, only with a handful of wires and spanners, you're halfway there. Round joined Marconi in 1902, very early on, just one year after the first transatlantic wireless communication. There's no money in it all at this stage, it's just engineering and innovating for the sake of it, for very little profit. One of his earliest roles at Marconi's was to develop one of the first ways of tuning your radio. His method was a dust-cored tuning inductor, the old DCTI as I'm sure no one's ever called it. The government snap him up for military intelligence, especially contributing his direction-finding invention, saving Blighty from the huge Battle of Jutland, biggest sea battle of all time. Captain Round essentially spotted the German ships moving by this early radar, before it's even called radar. No spoilers, but in World War II, he was brought in to develop what we now call sonar, submarine detection technology. By the end of his life, he's an expert on echo sounding, he holds 117 patents, and he's designed countless transmitters, valve sets, and given us radio, radar, and sonar. Oh, and he discovered electroluminescence, in other words, the LED, 50 years before anybody else realised that's what he discovered, and actually put it to some use. So well done, Captain Round. So there you have it. That's Captain Round. Thank you, Pippi Radio Voice. More from him another time. So we pick him up for this story. After the war, 1919, Captain Round is sent to install a huge wireless telephony station in Ireland at Ballybunion. To do that, he's lined up with a younger engineer, new to Marconi's, William Ditcham. And Ditcham is about to become the first person to do something quite remarkable. But before we meet Mr Ditcham, let's meet a listener. We invite you each episode to contribute an early broadcasting memory, either those from childish encounters with radio or TV, or indeed old radio or TV you discovered later in life. You can record me some audio, like a voice memo on your phone, and just send it with your name and location in that audio message to paul at paulcarenza.com. Here is this week's. Hi Paul, Jez Gibson, your fellow uh, Guildfordian friend. 
some memories to share for the British Broadcasting Century podcast. Initial thought count comes to mind was actually some childhood trauma experienced um, care of the BBC with that weird test page thing in 1978 with the um, the little girl and the clown. And yeah, it's like something out of a horror movie, um, but a test page. Uh, thankfully, therapy uh, came in the form of Chris Tarrant and co messing around on um, Saturday morning's kids TV with Tiz was just so, so many good memories. Um, my parents used to occasionally let me stay up a little bit late and then watch something probably not appropriate for a child of the age of that time. But it was Kenny Everett, who was just an absolute legend. Uh, so funny. And uh, I just remember him in a Spider-Man costume going to a urinal and then not being able to find a zipper to be able to go to the loo in the Spidey costume. So funny. Uh, and the last thing to share with you was Steve Wright in the afternoon where it was just really revolutionary that he introduced lots of kind of crazy characters as kind of bit parts in the show uh, and that just really stood out as being something really cool um all the best and look forward to hearing more cheers bye for now ah thank you jez yes indeed the haunting test card well if you think that was haunting we're about to meet a different sort of spooky test the north sea ghost genuine overheard spookiness from a test signal before the first world war one Two, Over the airwaves, three, wireless receiving four, sets could hear this five, haunting counting six, sound. Seven, nine, I mean eight, sorry. Eight, the North Sea eight, Ghost nine, is in fact ten, wireless developer 11, Grindel Matthews. 12, ghosts aren't good at counting. 13. The sound 14, of him counting is heard 15, ethereally 16, across the waves, both the airwaves and the 18, ocean waves. 19. 20! Oh, I mean tw- 20. Got a bit excited there for a ghost. Ooh. From the west of England to the Dutch coast. These are very early very unreliable vocal tests on the radio. Working for Grindel Matthews is one of this episode's heroes, that young William Ditcham. Now, Grindel Matthews' company that Ditcham works for is not as big as Marconi's. They're a small upstart, I mean start-up. Their tests don't really work that well, and sadly those tests are in front of the Postmaster General's offices. Not only that, but if they did work, no one else really shares their view that there is a future for these transmissions. There may be supply of them, but there's not really demand for them. There's no radio buying public at this stage. Not only that, but this is in 1914. So, oh dear, there's that war looming. Grindel Matthews has his stations closed down, dismantled and locked by the General Post Office, who are in charge of not only the post, but of course the telegraph industry as well. Anything that sends and receives messages, I don't quite know if they're in charge of carrier pigeons, but I imagine so. By war's end in 1918, Grindel Matthews is out of business, technology has moved on at Marconi's, and so William Ditcham moves there, under Captain Henry Round and his fat cigar. So now Ditcham and Round are both at Marconi's. One of their first jobs is in Ireland, at Ballybunion, where this new high-powered transmitter is being tested. So what is that remarkable thing that W.T. Ditcham achieves? Well, in testing the transmitter, Ditcham's voice becomes the first to be sent west across the Atlantic. He's heard at a receiving station in Nova Scotia. Hello, Canada. Hello, Canada. This is the Marconi Valve Transmitter Station, Ballybunion, Ireland, calling on a wavelength of 3,800 metres. Can you hear me? Please report signals. Their experimentation surpasses all hopes, but that is nothing compared to what comes next. In December 1919, back in Chelmsford for another test, this time it's all about range testing. A new 6 kilowatt transmitter is granted a license, and the call sign of that transmitter, MZX. And MZX is another name. They should be giving a meeting room at New Broadcasting House in London instead of Mrs Brown's Boys or what have you. MZX is where it all kicks off. 
MZX calling. MZX calling. Next time on the British Broadcasting Century, railways, a new service, and we'll meet British Radio's first professional artiste and hear the very songs that she was singing, if not by her, because no one thought to record it. It's like they didn't even plan on podcasts. If you so wish, there are three ways you can support this podcast. Patreon.com slash Paul Carenza for the regular monthlies with all benefits and patron-only goodies and things like that. There's coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com slash Paul Carenza, dots and dashes. Oh, oh yes, Morse code still here to stay for tips for coffee. Maybe now and then or a tip an episode if you can. All of this helps to keep the podcast going. Web hosting costs, equipment. Maybe one day I'll even be able to hire an editor and pay for access, perhaps for older clips and historical broadcasting brilliance. Or just have that cup of coffee. If you can support on patreon.com slash Paul Carenza, P-A-U-L-K-E-R-E-N-S-A, or coffee.com slash Paul Carenza. I thank you. There is a third way you can support, and that's to like, share, rate, review, subscribe. I would love it if you'd give us a great rating, a great review. That would be amazing. It really helps places like Apple Podcasts pick up on the podcast and help promote us to things like new and noteworthy, things like that. So please, if you can help us, do take a few moments to do that. Subscribing, of course, just helps you get the episodes next time. And if you visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash bbcentury, there are plenty of beautiful old images, audio and video from broadcasting's earliest moments for you to like and share. If you can spread the word, we are a new little thing and it's just me. This is nothing to do with the BBC. Questions and comments are welcome on Twitter at BB Century or email me paul at paulcarenza.com with a voice message of your earliest broadcast memory to get on a future episode. If you could record about a minute of your name, location and earliest broadcasting memory. Or if you stumbled upon this podcast and early radio is your area, please do drop me a line by all means, paul at paulcarenza.com. It would be a delight to have your expert contributions or indeed just interested amateur ones as the podcast continues. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by Paul Carenza, with original music by Will Farber. Archive clips are, to the best of our knowledge, in the public domain, being as old as they are. But if you disagree and own any clips, do get in touch, accept our apologies, we'll humbly take them down. But also have our thanks for having such marvellous audio there for us to hear and learn from. Stay safe, stay informed, educated and entertained, and join us next time on the British Broadcasting Century.